we went from being on food stamps to two years later, a Chinese investor deposited $10 million into our bank account. It was just night and day, you know, it was, it was insane. Hi, friends, and welcome to episode 109 of the Assyrian Podcast. This is Steve, and we are so excited to be back. We all need time to rest, relax, refresh, and then hit the ground running again. And I can't think of a better way to restart than to hear from Scott Christian Sava. What if I told you that there was an Assyrian animator and storyteller who worked on classics like Casper the Friendly Ghost, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, Star Trek, Spider-Man, and many more. And also contracted stars like Danny DeVito, Sylvester Stallone, Emily Blunt, and the list goes on and on. And this same artist and storyteller has a new movie debuting on Netflix on July 24th called Animal Crackers. It was a privilege for me to interview Scott and I'm so happy that we get to share it with you on the Assyrian Podcast. This is as inspiring and unique of a story as I've heard on the Assyrian Podcast, so I think you're going to love it. After listening to the interview, don't forget to tune in on Netflix on July 24th for the debut of Animal Crackers. Before we begin, I have an announcement. The Assyrian Podcast is looking for a social media coordinator. So if you have a passion for engagement and are a super fan of the Assyrian Podcast, please let us know. We'd love to discuss the opportunity with you. DM us or email us at info at also, don't forget to smash that subscribe button and share the podcast with your friends and family. And last but not least, support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Calgaracos and the Injury Lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious car accident, please reach out to Tony Calgaracos. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and as a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. And now here is Scott Christian Sava. I would love to hear about your origins, your heritage, your family, and then transition into animation and then transition into directing and then <laughs> jump into the exciting piece of what's going on lately with Animal Crackers coming out. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. I actually had my mother prepare a cheat sheet for me, so I made sure I got all the dates and everything right for my heritage because, you know, it's not something you talk about a lot, but, you know, it, it is, it's an important part of our family and our, and our heritage and our history. I know you're from Yonkers, so take me to where your parents are from and their parents and how you ended up in Yonkers. Yeah, yeah. So my grandparents on my mother's side were from Iran, and they were escaping the Turks. And so they fled to New York. It took them several times to get through. It, it was a bit of a point of contention, you know, with, with my family, whenever it came to talking about immigration was because they it took them. My, my grandmother had to go through Cuba. She had to live in Cuba for a while. She had to go to Italy for a while. I mean, it took her years to get through 
the proper channels and, you know, getting the, the, the proper documentation and everything to get, to get in here. But they were very proud of that. And I think they got, they met here in, or they met here in America. 1918 was when they came over and 1927 was when they got married. So wow. somewhere between 1918 and 1927, they met. The family name was Karam, C-A-R-A-M. And my grandfather was Aramya. He went by Jerry. And my grandmother was uh, Judith. And so, and her maiden name was Yonin. And so there was a, a pretty large Assyrian community in Yonkers. So I was born in 1968. So 40 years later, I came around. And my mother says I spoke Assyrian up until about four. But yeah. we moved when I was four, we moved to Florida. And so I was kind of taken away from that. And then we would go back in the summers and visit and spend the summers with our family in Yonkers. But I never picked it back up. And so I lost that part. Is your dad a Syrian as well? No, no, he's Sicilian. So a little bit of half and half. But I am second generation American in that his parents were from Palermo as well. So, oh, I see. So, so basically both parents are immigrants. Yeah, exactly. And, and I'm sure both of them could relate to each other, knowing this new country, trying to figure it out. And so they found allies in each other. Yeah, yeah, they did. They did. I mean, uh, you know, my, my grandparents were very, very tied into the Assyrian community. Uh, I mean, it, it's funny, I'll see books and photos on Assyrians in New York and there'll be my grandparents, you know, and almost all of the photos, you will always see them somewhere because they were, they were very social. They're very unlike me. I, I'm a hobbit. <laughs> you know, you yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm not a very social person, but they loved it. They loved family. They, they always had people. They were always welcoming people into their home. And it was, it was a sense of pride for them to try to help others emigrate here and to, to take care of others whenever with whatever they had. So uh, it was, it was good to see. And when I think it was 1980, I think they decided to move to San Jose, California. And so I think it was around 1981 that my mother and my father decided to move us to California as well. And I got to reconnect with them on a daily basis. You know, we would see them in the summers, but now we moved like a couple blocks away from them. And so I was able to ride my bike over after school and spend more time with my grandparents and my aunts and my uncles and my cousins. And and that was really good. It was a good few years where we got to do that. And then after a few years, they moved to Turlock. Whoa. And, uh, yeah. The capital so, of Assyria, man. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Already in your story, it's so awesome, man. Your parents have traveled. They took you to Florida, back to Yonkers and then San Jose. Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it, it was, I got to see a lot of America just, you know, from that and, you know, experience a lot of different things, but it was nice to always have those roots to keep coming back to. So that, that was nice. And I, I do miss, I do miss having that. I think we always do, you know, we miss having that, that close knit family that you could just go in and share stories and eat together. It's always eating, you know, but it, it, it eat together and, and whatnot. And, you know, we do miss that. Yeah, one of the true Assyrian distinctives, I believe, is how hospitable we could be and welcoming the stranger and having meals together. It's transformative. Um, yeah, yeah, but, it really is. It's, 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 it's our, our most cherished memories. 
And did you have any siblings growing up? I did. I did. I have a sister who's four years younger, but you know, I, I think I was closest to my cousins, you know, to this day, you know, we will meet a couple times a year, other cousins, we will have Thanksgivings together. And that that's allowed us to connect and, you know, keep alive. Some of the Assyrian traditions is, is with the, the larger cousin group. We do that a lot. Yeah. Very cool. So you as a youngster though, were you one of those kids that was reading every comic, watching every cartoon and your parents turning on the TV? Go ahead. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> exactly. I had my head in the clouds. I always wanted to, since I was probably about seven or eight, I'd wanted to be the artist on Spider-Man. And so for me, I was always drawing, 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 drawing. And the Caroms had a lot of artists in the family. My grandmother's brother, Dave, he was a, a fantastic painter. My mother's brother, Raymond, was an illustrator. And my mother even went to art school uh, for fashion design. And so there was, there was a lot of art in our family. And then, of course, music. For me, it was natural and, and they encouraged it. And so they, they encouraged me to, to, to always have a sketchbook, to go to art school. And, and I pursued that. I eventually got into video games and worked, worked in, in, in video games for a while. But I was always wanting to be that artist on Spider-Man. And it, it took a while. I think I was maybe 30 years old, uh, 30, 31 when it finally happened. But I got to be the artist on Spider-Man. I got to do the comic book in 2002. So Scott, I got to stop you and just say every Assyrian guy my age, you're living our dream. (laughs) (laughs) Like my parents would unplug the Nintendo. Your parents got you or you work to get a job and work with (laughs) on video games. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was, well, the funny thing is, is that my dad, he was working on pinball machines when we lived in Florida at Bally Midway. And his job offer to go to California, to go to San Jose was to work at Atari back when Atari, the 2600 was huge. And he worked in the coin op division in the, in the arcade game division. And funny story was I was about 12, 13 years old at the time. And of course, when your dad works at Atari, you want to go in and visit anytime you can, you know, there was video games. You didn't have to put quarters in, you know, and so I would go a lot. And I remember one time it was the summer, one of the artists there, they had asked my dad, hey, next time you bring your son, tell him to bring his bicycle. Okay, so brought my bicycle, which was so cool. I got to ride my bicycle through Atari. And and, and so they set up some ramps and they had me jump over ramps and they were rotoscoping me for something. And uh, they had me throwing things and, and dodging things and this and that. And, it, and I forgot about it. And it was maybe two, three years later, I was in high school and I go to a 7-Eleven and there's this game called Paperboy. Yeah. And there's this kid with his hat backwards, which I used to wear my hat backwards. And, and, and I'm watching this. I go, that's me. I, I'm Paperboy. <laughs> you know, they used, they rotoscoped me for that. And I was in art school. It was 1990 and Sega had set up an American division, Sega of America, and they were looking for artists. And my dad said, well, why don't you go and you, you know, apply? They're looking for interns. I, we didn't have a computer. I, you know, I didn't have any experience or anything. He says, give, give it a shot. So I went in and I applied and they kind of give, inter- back then they give interns like homework. Go and draw this or go and do that. So I did their 
their homework, but I also, they were working on the, uh, remember Warren Beatty did that Dick Tracy movie? That's right. They were doing a Dick Tracy video game at the time. And so I illustrated a cover, you know, I illustrated the cover for that. And I said, and so when I came in, I said, here's your homework. And by the way, I illustrated the cover in case you want to use it for your, your video game cover. And it was kind of one of those, I like your moxie kid, you know, kind of things. And he gave me the job and I got to learn how to work. And I was working on a 16 bit video games for a bit. And that got me into animation. And then eventually after I graduated, worked a couple other jobs and then I got a job at Atari. So I was kind of a second generation Atari video games. And so I was a game designer there for a bit. And that was really cool. And we got my wife and I, we got married and about a year after we got married, I got a job offer to go and work down in Los Angeles at a place called Malibu comics. And they were doing video games and comic books. And I, I, um, I got a job doing Star Trek comic book covers. So I was doing the covers for their Star Trek comics. And so we moved, you know, we, we weren't even married a year and suddenly we're on our own and we, we moved to Los Angeles. Yeah. And I've done a little bit of homework on your family and, and your wife, man. Seems like that's another one of those just perfect mate was brought into your life. Yeah. Yeah. She's a powerhouse. I mean, she's, we're partners, you know, so it, it's, it's, she, she was marketing and, and I was art. And, and so we, after, you know, she went to work at Malibu as well. And, uh, and everybody at Malibu loved her way more than me. Cause she was so efficient. She, you know, I'm an artist, so I'm just flittering all about, you know, trying to do this and trying to do that. But she was amazing. And, and Malibu got bought out by uh, Marvel comics and she handled all of the press releases for that. Was we she were, an artist or did no, she, she have- was marketing? She was marketing. She was PR and marketing. And, and so she would handle press releases. She would handle just the public image of everything. And, and so she would handle all the stuff that artists don't care about, you know, and all the important stuff. But over the next 10 years, we, we were, I was getting more animation work. I was doing work. I got work on the Casper movies. I did Power Rangers. I would work on, you know, Aliens versus Predator, X-Files, little things like that. And, um, I always wanted to be the artist on Spider-Man though. So every, every year I would go to Comic-Con, I would bring my portfolio and I would get rejected every single year since I was 17. So it was like 13 years of rejection. And I just kept going back and going back. And finally in 2002, I got the, I got the opportunity and I did it and, and it was great. You know, I, I, I I did four issues, you know, became a graphic novel. It was fine. And I got it out of my system. And I think it was at that point I went, okay, well we did it. I, you know, I, I got to do this. What do you want to do next? And so we decided let's have kids. <laughs> you know, we were I married see. 10 years. And so my wife got pregnant with twins and everything was good. Uh, we were there for, we were in LA um, for a total of 15 years. But when the boys were about four, we just realized we didn't want to raise the boys in California. And so we started looking around and we fell in love with Franklin, Tennessee. So 13 years ago, we, we moved out here, bought a nice, you know, house on an acre of land and good schools. And, and it's been good. It's been really good. I I started writing more books after I got Spider-Man out of my system. I started to write books for the kids. There really wasn't much kids comics. And so I just started writing a bunch of stories for the kids and Hollywood started calling. 
they liked this story, they liked that story. And so Disney would option pet robots, MTV would option hyperactive, uh, Fox would option the luckiest boy. And optioning, optioning is basically, they'll borrow it for three years. And if during those three years, they come up with enough stuff to where they decide they want to put it into production, then they'll write you a big check. But in the meanwhile, they write you a very tiny check just to kind of keep it off the market so no one else buys it. I see. And uh, so we did that for several years, all the times really struggling financially because, you know, we moved to Tennessee and we had a hard time finding work and our book publisher didn't pay us the money that they owed us. And we were really struggling. And it was at this time, probably around uh, 2010, 2011, that we realized we got to make a movie ourselves. No, Hollywood's just too slow, too inefficient. Uh, people really don't see the stories very well. Uh, we got to do this ourselves. And so as we were starting to come to that conclusion, we were on food stamps. Our house was in foreclosure. And, and so Donna, uh, my wife said, I'll go back to work. Let's give this a shot. I'll go back to work. And so she left the kids. She left everything to go and, and keep us keep us alive so that way I could get this this gig. And it took two years from there. So it was 2014 when we finally got the money. And, and we went from being on food stamps to two years later, a Chinese investor deposited $10 million into our bank account. It was just night and day, you know, it was, it was insane, but you know, it wasn't our money, but it was still our responsibility. And, you know, we were able to, she was able to quit her job and we were able to make a movie and that's kind of where everything just changed for us. Yeah. So as you were talking, as you were talking, oh my gosh, you mentioned Atari and Sega and Power (laughs) Rangers. So for a minute though, we, I'd love to camp out on the big name people that you're like, for example, Paperboy. I remember that game. You you had to aim the paper right at the person's house. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And so your dad ended up in Atari and then you kind of, and when you mentioned like Sega, I don't know if people, you know, remember, but Sega was huge. Yeah. Yeah. So Sega you, Genesis was uh, after the Nintendo, I think, and or around the same time. But yeah, it was, it was cool. I worked, the game that I worked on at Sega was called Kid Chameleon. And it was about a kid who would put on different, like you side scroller and you put on different hats. You put on like a, a samurai helmet and you become a samurai and you put on I don't know, a hockey player helmet, you become a hockey player. So it was, it was pretty cool. You know, people forget those days, the video games. I remember playing the old Maddens, for example, and everyone was number 11. But oh. <laughs> just because the graphics were so poor, but you must yeah. have spent a lot of time doing the animations there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, 16-bit animation is not for the faint of heart. It's, you know, you're, it's like, it's like animating with Legos. It's just right. blocks. And, uh, but you know what? It was what we had at the time and we really liked it. It was the building blocks for you and your career yeah. working for those companies that introduced you to different streams of consciousness, awareness, different folks. What was happening with all these relationships? It taught me a lot about working in corporate structure, you know, with the corporate structure, it taught me a, a bit about art direction. It taught me about goals and planning and, and a lot of structure. I mean, stuff that I carried to making the movie. So, so yeah. So, I mean, it helped me with that. It, it got me into computers and animation and, and, and you know, the computers is 
how I wound up getting the job doing Spider-Man. You know, there's so many artists who can draw, but the way that we finally cracked the code on doing Spider-Man was we did it on the computer. We did it CGI, you know, like an animated movie. And that was the hook that Marvel Comics needed to hire me. And mm-hmm. and was that and was that through your Oh, Blue Dream Studios? Yeah. No, I didn't start up Blue Dream. Well, I guess it was. Yeah, because I started up Blue Dream in like end of 1999. So yeah, I guess it was Blue Dream Studios. But Blue Dream Studios came about because I was getting so much work. You know, in the in the the mid to late 90s, after I had did, so I had done Casper the Friendly Ghost. I was the lead on the the uncle stretch, <laughs> uh, and um, that taught me animation. And you know, 3D animation. And once I learned that, there was so much work in Hollywood that, like I said, there was Power Rangers, there was X Files, there was, you know, Predator, Aliens, things like that, that people were throwing work at me so much that, excuse me, I had to, I had to farm it out. I had to, to get help. And once you start hiring other people, you really have to set up a company for that. And so that's, that's really where my company kind of came from was just the, the necessity. We were getting so much work. And your wife was an excellent ally, I'm guessing. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, she ran everything. She, to this day, she still does. You know, she's, she's been, she sets up the corporate structure. She handles all the pay, you know, the payments. She handles budgets, everything. And back to getting the Spider-Man role and executing on that. When you're done with that and you decide to have children, like, tell us what was happening inside of you. Um, you know, I, I think, I think when you have a goal and you finally achieve it, there's a sense of, uh oh, you know, what do I do now? And, but you know, the decision to have kids was mutual, you know, neither of us really were gung ho on having kids. I mean, we'd gone 10 years and, and I think during those 10 years, and I think it was really good for us because we got married young, you know, she was 23, I was 24. I think it was, uh, it was it was good for us to experience life, you know, before, before, you know, cause once you have kids, once we had kids, everything changed, every, everything becomes about the kids and you want it to be that you want them to be your world. You want them to be everything you focus on. And, and so I think, I think it, it worked out really well for us because we got to spend 10 years to be just the two of us and experiment. We tried out Aikido I learned how to ride a motorcycle. We traveled, you know, went to London and Paris, you know, whatever, whatever we felt that we wanted to do, we tried and, you know, we tried different careers, we tried different jobs. So it was good. And then once the kids came around, then it was it. That was our focus and everything we did was for them. And that's how it's been since. Yeah. And I think for so many people, they long for that. They long for those years of, you know, it, when I was younger, if only I would have just spent more time traveling and you know, trying new things. And it sounds like you got your fill and then you hit this yeah. big dream and then all this. And then, you know, you're on food stamps and your wife is working at Target on the shipping docks. And all of a sudden you're raising $20 million for a yeah. movie. <laughs> yeah, it, it's, it's just the highs were very high and the lows were very low. That's the best way to say it. So there is, I would love actually, I feel like if we had a five hour podcast, I would, <laughs> I would not even want to talk about animal crackers yet because this is amazing, man. I mean, I'm, 
I, I think your parents, for example, gave you so much latitude to pursue what you wanted to pursue and, and you made the most of it. You didn't, you didn't say, Oh, let me just focus on making money or whatever. You really focused on your passion. I did. I did. I was, I was very blessed to, to have parents who let me do that and, and encouraged me to do that. And was there any one cartoon that you saw or any one book that, that something erupted inside of you or was it just like a bunch of gradual small ones? Yeah. I, I, you know, there were books I read, there were comics I read, there were movies I saw that all inspire me. Every story I tell has a little bit of something, you know, it, whether it's the Hobbit or clash of the Titans or you know, John Carter of Mars or Bugs Bunny or Speed Racer or Six Million Dollar Man, you know, they all inspire me in some way or another. Star Wars, you know, I, I, they're all a part of the soup that's going on in my head. Just the, the, the big mixture of, of ideas and, and, and feelings. And, uh, and I, and I call on them for different projects that, you know, that I'm going to work on you know, for the first 30 years, I filled my head with um, all the fun stuff that, that, that made me me. And then, and then when I had the kids, I wanted to tell stories. So I have, and I told stories based on stuff that I thought they would like to. So if they were into dinosaurs, I did a story called Cameron is dinosaurs. For my parents, I did, my grandparents are secret agents. I, I like robots. So I did pet robots. I did uh, Gary the pirate. I did the luckiest boy, hyperactive. Uh, the Dreamland Chronicles is all the fantasy stuff that I loved. Uh, it has dragons and dwarves and elves and and you know crazy stuff like that. So I I just you know uh, with Animal Crackers the idea really just came from us the boys were maybe six or seven and we were sitting in the backyard and eating animal crackers and I had the idea of what if you eat an animal animal or you eat a lion cookie and poof, you become a lion. Or you eat a giraffe cookie and poof, you become a giraffe. And for all I know, that came from that, you know, that that Sega game I was working on, where the kid puts on a helmet, he becomes <laughs> the same. You know, I who knows? I mean, it's just they say nothing is original. Every every idea we have is based off of an amalgamation of stories that we've heard and experiences that we've had. And and so I just kind of run with it and just kind of put that all together. Yeah, and right now with everything that's going on in the world i would say even the last five years telling a children's story is sort of so unique and uh, precious and it, it you have to touch that very gentle side of yourself in a world that that can be very harsh so you could have really done any animation right you could have kept doing with more video games or whatnot and and instead you just have focused in on storytelling and in particular with this you're doing storytelling for children yeah yeah well, i mean i the books were written for my kids so and they were very young and so i mean i i i tend to write young you know just just because like you said there is enough darkness in the world there is enough to you know tension in the world i like to i like to to bring out the the best in people. I like to, to think the best of people and, and to, to find not the heroes, but just the, the good in all of us. And, and so I like to write stories about that. And I like the what ifs, 
You know, what if we did this? What if that happened? What if this happened? And so that that's just become become my my wheelhouse. Yeah. It's, you know, it's what I feel comfortable with. You know, if I if I could emulate anybody, it would be Jim Henson or Mr. Robert or Mr. Rogers. You know, it, it would be people who bring joy to to kids, both you know, kids and and adults. You know, our boys they would watch Bear in the Big Blue House and Blue's Clues and stuff. So there was you know similar similar things, but yeah, I you know it's been fun because now they're seventeen. But over the years, I remember the first time showing them Star Wars and the first time when they got a little older, showing them Indiana Jones and then, you know, the Lord of the Rings. And, and now they're 17. I can show them stuff like The Matrix and uh, you know things yeah. like that. But, you know, it's it's fun experiencing those 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 memories with them. And, and that that's been really special. And in some ways, I think as an artist, all of a sudden you got to put your money where your mouth is because your kids are watching movies. Yeah. yeah. And uh, tell me sort of how that has played in. Cause you mentioned animal crackers. The idea came when, you know, you're, I guess I had heard this, that you had one of your kids had ate an animal cracker and the idea was, okay, you ate a lion. Now you're a lion. Yeah. Yeah. And it was, I, yeah, go ahead. it was a fun idea. And so I wrote a book on it and, um, I named the the little boy and the little girl in the who go to the circus. I named them after my niece and nephew Owen and Zoe, and so they go they go with their uncle Doug, who is my wife's brother's name, and and so I, I like to add family into all of the the books. So you know they they have this adventure and they get this box of magical animal crackers and little Owen. Uh, and Zoe, they save the the animals from the circus, and the animals don't like being at the circus, and so they save them. And it was it was you know one of like a dozen books that I wrote for the kids. And when it came time to to make a movie, and we were we were looking for something different. That was I I wrote a screenplay based off of that. But for the screenplay, um, because it, you generally if you if you you generally don't want to work with child actors just because you can attach a bigger name so to speak that's that's the thinking of it is so we have adults so i made owen and zoe husband and wife and they have a little daughter named mackenzie who's another one of my nieces and we got our money you know like 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 i mentioned uh back in 2014 and then we went to to start casting uh the film and First of all, we couldn't believe that we were actually making a movie, you know, from Franklin, Tennessee. And so we we start casting and the the budget was originally 10 million. It was going to be a low budget direct to DVD, low low budget film. And it's my first time, so I didn't want to go crazy. But Sir Ian McKellen, Gandalf, hmm. liked the script and said yes. And from from there it was it was a moment you know ian mckellen is going to be in our film as horatio p huntington and he that was the that was the big name that sort of opened the door to all the other big names it was yeah i mean because of that suddenly sylvester stallone's you know saying well if if Ian McKellen thinks it's a good script, then maybe, you know, I should, and then Danny DeVito came on board and then, 
Raven Simone and Harvey Firestein and Patrick Warburton and, and all of these Gilbert Gottfried and all of these other actors and actresses, these wonderful people came on board and like with it just kind of just opened the floodgates and 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 the funny thing was is that we still didn't have Owen and Zoe. Um, and, and that that was the the most important, not the most important, but that was, you know, we, we couldn't move forward with recording without them. And so this was 2014 and my casting director, Jamie Thomason says, well, let me throw a name at you. He says, John Krasinski. And I said, I never heard of him. And he's in the office. Yeah. I never watched the office. He's like, well, trust me, he's a funny guy. I said, okay, I'll trust you. So John Krasinski signs on board. And then he says, uh, for Zoe, I think we can get Kaylee Cuoco. I said, I have no idea who she is. He says, from the Big Bang Theory. I never watched that. He goes, okay, you need to watch more TV. But in the meanwhile, that's going to be your two leads. I said, okay. So beginning of 2015, I hop on a flight. I take some Xanax first. And then I hop on a flight. And I fly out to to Los Angeles from Nashville. And to meet Kaylee Cuoco, John Krasinski, Danny DeVito, and Raven Simone. And the first day is John and Kaylee. And I, I walk in and I meet John and John's just charming. He's wonderful. He's funny. He's nice. Kaylee doesn't show up. And uh, so I'm like, okay, we record John. And the next day we record Raven and Danny, who were amazing. And then I fly home. And two weeks later, come back. John's there. Kaylee's not there again. Okay, come back a few weeks later. John's there. Kaylee's not there again. Uh-oh. So we had to fire her. And I was like, oh my God, this is my first movie. I'm already, I'm firing somebody. You know, this was crazy. And so I'm pretty freaked out. And John, we're in the, we're in the, the sound booth. And John says, hey, I just want to let you know my wife just really loved your script. And I said, oh, thanks. And I walked away because why would I know who he's married to if I didn't even know who he was in the first place? And so I just kind of walked away. And fortunately, since we were in the sound booth, Jamie overheard it. He comes running in. He says, would she be interested in working on the film? And John said, sure. So he pulls out his phone, texts and says, hey, babe, you want to be in the movie? A few minutes later, gets a message back saying, yeah. And he goes, she's in. And that's how Emily Blunt came on the film. <laughs> it was just dumb luck, you know? And I, I, you know, I, everything for me was a first time was, you know, I, 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 I didn't know what I was doing. I was figuring things out. I was making mistakes and, and I was loving every minute of it. You know, I, I spent a lot of time I'm sure I annoyed John and Emily because every time they would come in, I would want to ask them a bunch of questions. How do you do this? What do you do that? And John was directing his first film called, or he just finished directing his first film called The Hollers. And so I was asking him a lot of directing questions. I would ask Danny DeVito and Raven Simone. And Raven Simone was going to uh, the Academy of Art, which is where I went to school as well. So she would show me her watercolors and we were just, so it was, it was very personal. You know, for me, it wasn't business as usual. And so everything for me was a personal experience and, and I, I, I soaked it all in, you know, every, every little bit, you know, meeting Sylvester Stallone, you know, I, I spent good 45 minutes with just him telling me stories about how he got his big break and the things that he had to do. And then him looking me in the eye and saying, 
this is your project. Don't let anybody take this from you. You know, this mm-hmm. is, you created this just like I created Rocky, you know, you've, you've got to fight for it. And, you know, just giving me pep talks, you know, from <laughs> getting pep talks from Rocky, you know? Yeah. Um, so it was, did, it was, it was amazing. Uh, did you ever being thrusted into this new environment, did you ever struggle with, do I belong here? How did I get here? Or what, were you ready for all of this? Um, both. Uh, I was never ready. I've never been somebody who has shied away from trying something new as far as, you know, work goes. Um, if it's food, yeah, I won't do it. But if, if it's something like making a movie or trying a new kind of art or telling a story a different way, the worst you could do is you know, fail at it. And then you move on, you learn from it. And, and I think a lot of learning comes from failing. And so for me, it's, it's not, it's not like the movie wasn't going to get made, but you just, you just go and you just try it. And I mean, there's for a prime example was we were about a year into the film and we're, we're getting shots back and there's a segment where the character Horatio, and I guess there is in every film or a story where you discover the, the, the motivation for the villain. Why is this person the antagonist? And, and, you know, they call it, uh, from the Incredibles, they call it monologuing. Mm-hmm. And so the character's monologuing. He's like, you know, this is why I'm the bad guy. And it was just a few sentences and it didn't take more than maybe 15 seconds, but, and, and even though it was Ian McKellen who can make anything sound wonderful, I just thought we need to do something. And so I, I was talking to my casting director, Jamie, and he said, well, what would you suggest? I said, what if he breaks out into song and he sings it? And Jamie says, well, there's, there's two problems with that. He, sa- he said, one, Ian McKellen's a Shakespearean actor. He doesn't sing. And two, we don't know how to write music. And I said, okay, we'll, we'll figure out one. I mean, we can, we can work with Ian McKellen, but what do we do about two? And he says, well, who do you, who do you have in mind to write the music? Cause I don't know anybody. He goes, well, what, what movies or TV shows? And I said, well, my kids really like Phineas and Ferb. There's a musical number in each one of those episodes. It's on the Disney channel. He goes, oh, I says, I, I work with Dan and Swampy who, who created it. Let me, re- let me talk to them. He reaches out to them. They said, yeah, we'd love to write a song. And within like a week or two, we had a song written. It was a wonderful song. And I think within the month, we were out in London and Ian McKellen singing a duet with Gilbert Gottfried. Oh my gosh. And, and it's just, and it was just, well, why not? Well, you know, what's it? The worst that could happen is it's horrible and we don't put it into the film. And, uh, but it wasn't, it was really fun and it was, and it was cute and, I, th- I think it's, you know, I, I think a lot of people don't do things because they're worried about failure. And I fail all the time, a day. I fail tons of times each day. And especially making the movie. I mean, I, there's, there, there's so many things wrong with animal crackers. There's so many things that people are going to criticize and people are going to, you know, say, oh, this is amateurish. Yeah, it's my first movie. You know, mm-hmm. I, I hope it's like, it's like being afraid to, to, show your first painting or let anybody listen to your first song. You have to, you have to put it out there. You have to get feedback, see what works, see what doesn't. And then you build on it and you make the next one better and the next one better. 
I mean, I hope I get to make more movies. If not, okay, then that was it. That's the best I was ever able to achieve. But if I get to make a second movie, I guarantee you it's going to be so much better than the first movie and so on and so forth. Yeah, and you fought tooth and nail to make sure that this comes in comes out to the world the way you wanted it to come out. Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's because it was it when was the movie completed? It was completed at the end of 2016, and and, and it sat for three years, but it it didn't sit because of anything creative. It was Hollywood studios that made promises they couldn't keep. And they either went bankrupt or, you know, just, just had financial problems of one sort or another. But it sat for three years because of just greed and stupidity. And how big has this breakthrough been for you now that it's about to get published on Netflix? I, I mean, it's going out to 200 million subscribers around the world in like 100 and something <laughs> languages. So it's it's a little daunting, you know, and, and I've been on every YouTube channel I could find and every, you know, Twitter stream or anything I could find where I can talk to people and just, I want to know what people are going to think. I mean, I can't wait until July 25th to where I can, I can hear what people think of it. And, and, and again, I'm not expecting everybody to love it. I, I'm not expecting 50% of the people to love it, but I want to know what I did wrong. So that way, hopefully when I do the next movie, I can learn from it. And I could say, okay, this worked and this didn't work. But Well, I can tell you right now, there'll be a group of people who are going to tell you they love it till they're blue <laughs> in the face. And that's the, the Assyrian people, that's it. Like, we love the movie, Scott, and we will never stop loving the movie. Thank so, you, my brothers and sisters. And, <laughs> yes, we are going to tell everyone we know, and we're going to say, we know him. We heard him on the Assyrian podcast. He's one of us. So, oh, um, thank you. Thank you. So I, I would... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, I'm done. I'm good. Yeah, I wanted I'm just smiling. To, good, man. We got your back. I'm telling you, people, like, when I first saw that this was coming out, I was like, I need to go learn more. And now I'm just thrilled, man. I'm, I'm actually very humble to know that all these video games I grew up, Power Rangers, Star <laughs> Wars, Star Trek, I'm like, yes, there was an Assyrian somewhere just yeah. doing some sketches, doing some work, a cog in the wheel, making things better. Yeah, yeah. It was. It's been a. It's been a good career so far. I mean, I'm 51, and I think I've accomplished a, a pretty good amount. But I, you know, I still have my eyes facing forward. I still want to do more. So we'll see. And, and with that being said, there was something you said in another interview that really hit me hard and I thought ooh if I could talk to Scott this is what I would ask him about which <laughs> is you talked about how Disney is all about the hero's journey as the narrative kind of arc for a lot of their movies yeah i've never heard good alternatives different arcs can you shed some light i'm very i don't speak hollywood i don't know how to do stories Take us into a little bit about a good story in your mind. You know, it, it's funny because I hadn't heard about the the hero's journey until uh, Tony Bancroft, my co-director. He he directed Mulan, and I mean he 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 knows storytelling from a Disney point of view better than anybody, and so he was the one who introduced me to that, and and I think everything I've ever done has been a gut feeling. And 
so I, I I'm not coming from a position of I studied film because I didn't. I was I, I I was an illustration major. I studied painting, so I, I I didn't have that background of studying film. I didn't have that background of being a screenwriter. I didn't have that background of of knowing a lot about animation or or film work. I was just telling stories based on the stories that I grew up and loved. And so I, I, again, everything is that, that amalgamation of the stories that I, that I, I grew up with, whether they be TV shows or books or comic books or, or movies or even video games. And so when it came to animal crackers, a lot of the decisions were also based on where the world was and where I was uh, too, because the original script was a hero's journey. It was Owen who was, uh, who, you know, who inherits a box of magical animal crackers and he saves this circus. And the wife, uh, Zoe was very non, you know, non-distinct. And I think it was around the time that obviously Emily Blunt came on board. Uh, I looked at it and I said, this, there's, there's no meat on this bone. There's nothing mm-hmm. here for her. And it was also around the time that the Me Too thing was going on. So there was a, there was a whole movement of why aren't there better roles for women? Why aren't there, you know, there were 50% of the population, you know, where, where are the, the roles for, for them? And as a, as a, a white straight male, you don't see these things. You really, we don't see it the same way a woman would. We don't see it the way a person of color would. We don't see it the way a gay or lesbian or transgendered person would. Um, it's our responsibility to change. It's our responsibility to, to, um, to, to write stories that are inclusive. And, mm-hmm. and this was something that at the time, uh, you know, everything converged to say, this has to be, and, and it made me realize and, and look at my own relationship with my wife and how we are 50% each. We are partners. She, she's, she's made sacrifices I haven't had to make to make the family better. And so I think I started writing from my experiences with her and with what was going on. And, and it, became, it, it became a family's journey. And, and the family uh, came together. And Owen is afraid to, to, leave, the, uh, to leave his job. Uh, whereas, whereas Zoe has the the strength and the courage to 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 follow her dreams, and she pushes him to be a better person, and and she's already a better person, and she has that. She became you know those parts of me that that was the dreamer. Where originally in the original script it was Owen ha- having all of those aspects. So I think it, I I think it became a better movie for it, and I think it became a better story, but. To be perfectly honest, I don't know if in any way that's a traditional story. I don't know if there's a category for that because yeah. I, I wouldn't know how to do that. But I, I, um, I, I've been trying as I've been writing more stories and, and as I've just as a human being to just become a better person, to become somebody who thinks outside themselves and, 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 and really tries to, to write truly three-dimensional characters and, and, and stories that reflect the world that we live in. Yeah. And a lot of the reason why we watch those movies is because we need to go beyond ourselves. We need stories that help us transform our own story. So we're thankful for the work that you do and 
being connected to, to all those people. And also how much your wife, Donna, right? Yeah. How much Donna has believed in you. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, we, 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 we're wonderful partners and, you know, she's an amazing mother and, you know, I, I, I mean, it's, it's, it seems redundant to even say I, I wouldn't be here without her, you know, mm-hmm. uh, I wouldn't be here without my parents who, who encouraged me. I wouldn't be doing this without my kids, you know, who, who I wrote these books for. So, I mean, there's, we, we are the, the result of the people around us and, and our experiences and the support that we have. Anybody who thinks that they're an island, that they did everything themselves is just fooling themselves. And a, and a movie above all teaches you that. Um, you, you don't see anybody who ever makes a movie on their own. I can sit down and I can make a painting. Um, I could even write a story, but you can't make a movie by yourself. Right. I mean, it took, it took 120 plus people to make that movie and every single one of them was crucial. And so I think you, you, you realize in your own personal life and your own family that we're, we're, we are who we are because of the people who love us and support us and encourage us to keep going on. And I want to keep talking to you about your family. I have like a bunch of thoughts going. One of them is how did that movie do in China? Has it, it did been good. It was, it was the number one animated movie for a few straight weeks, uh, which yeah. was good. And my investors made their money back. So that was good. Um, you know, the funny thing was, is that they, you know, they were going to be on a lot more screens, but it was a time of some political stuff where China and America weren't doing well. They weren't, they weren't getting along. It was 2018. And so a lot of the screens got cut. So I think it would have been the number one movie overall otherwise but uh it's all good it's all good and then what was it like i know you mentioned stallone devito and all these people gilbert Gottfried. what are these you felt good (laughs) just chatting away with these folks yeah you know i'm not i'm not i found that i am not a spontaneous conversationalist so i i i I can't tell you how many boring lunches I had with Ian McKellen or Danny DeVito or Gilbert Gottfried, where we're just sitting there eating and it's just silence. It wasn't until Stallone, you know, cause that was months later that Stallone came in that I, uh, and, and, and also John and Emily, I prepared. And I think that was the thing I had to learn was prepare some questions because boy, you stink at, at, at coming up with small talk, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I just, Gilbert Gottfried was just so funny and Harvey Firestein was amazing. I, you know, I just, everything was better than you would have imagined. Every experience was, was just, I mean, flying out to London. Um, I remember the last time I saw John and Emily, we had to go to the, the, the movie lot where she was preparing for Mary Poppins and and just just even just going there, I think it was Pinewood Studios, and and seeing them for the last time, um, everything was was a memory I'll I'll, I'll always cherish. I, I'm just unfortunately I don't have too many really really great conversations with with a lot of them just because I I I didn't know enough. It was just a learning process. I need to I need to learn to be a better conversationalist. That's that's great. I mean, I appreciate your authenticity and. Yeah, I mean, the the reality is like all of us get thrusted into new conversations and there's a whole 
bunch of social cues and all this kind of thing. And at the end of the day, though, it's it's just two hearts connecting. And if it happens, it happens. And if it doesn't, it's okay too. You know. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, and, I I I know a bunch of people who will stop uh, a celebrity and just be able to start talking to them. You know, and they'll say something like, "Oh, I remember you were in this movie." And it was this date and, and it affected me this way. And they can just do that right off the top of their head. And I can't tell you how many times when I was in Los Angeles and I'll be in an elevator and in comes like Michael Douglas or, or, you know, or Hugh Jackman or whoever. And, and I, I just sit there quietly. I nod and he nods back or, you know, and I don't know what to say, you know, and then afterwards, you know, you call your wife and she says, why didn't you say, I don't know. I don't know what to say. You know, I'm just extremely shy. So. Yeah, you really can't read into those situations. You kind of got to let the universe have its way and maybe they'll strike up a conversation with you about some random thing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I think a lot of people who listen to the podcast would love to know a little bit about your grind. Like what's your process when you're sitting down to, to write or to do some animation? Do you have a quiet room? Do you meditate? What, what helps you to kind of get that work done? Um, well, I, I have, I don't know if it's ADD or, or, or what, but I don't really work on anything in particular. Actually me sitting here for this interview is probably the longest I will sit for anything. I, I will write for maybe five, 10 minutes and then I'll go over to my drawing board and I'll paint for a little bit and then I'll come back and I'll play some video games and I'll go upstairs and I'll hang out with the kids and then I'll come back down and I'll write for a little more and and kind of just flitter about and I never really sit on anything for too long. Um, but I also have a hobbit hole I work in. So it's a very magical place, you know, it mm -hmm. kind of really gets you into a very creative mood. And, you know, but I, 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 I work very efficiently. I've learned that from working in video games uh, to work quickly and efficiently. So I've, you know, I you know shortcuts and, and hot keys on the computer. And, but I, I, I just, yeah, my grind is usually five or six things at a time is usually what I'm doing in a day. So I'll usually finish a painting. I'll usually write something. I'll usually play some video games. I'll catch up on some phone calls. I will go out. I'll go work on the car with my son. You know, we're fixing up an old 67 Cougar. I'll go for a bike ride with my other son. Um, you know, so I, I try to fill the day with a whole bunch of stuff, but by the end of the day, I'll have everything done. You know, Scott, all my life, they've been, you know, saying, oh, you need to focus on that one thing. And I thank you for sharing what you just shared <laughs> because it's freedom. And it is. It, you got to do what works for you. If your brain works a certain way, then work with that. My brain works in little 15 minute gaps. That's how it works. And so I make it work for me. And the reality is though, you set goals and you execute on those goals. Yeah. I, I, I love, uh, I love finishing things. Um, I put post-its up on the wall and I will, I like to take them down. Okay. I finished this and I take them down. So, uh, I think the thing is, is not to say write a novel, you know, you can't say write a novel. You have to say, write five pages. And that's something that you can do in a day. And you look at it and you go, okay, in 10 days, I'll have 50 pages. In 100 days, I'll have 500 pages. And that's how, and that's how you get things done. Um, I wrote the Dreamland Chronicles. And I started that in about 2003, 2004. 
and I would do the art and, and the writing and I would put up a page a day online and just one page a day, one page a day, one page a day. And 13 years later, I'd finished eight books in like 2,400 pages, <laughs> uh, you know, and, and the story's complete and, and I, and I love it. And, and that's, and that's, that was something that my kids grew up with. And, you know, so when I would finish another book, which was usually about 300 pages or so, I'd finish another book. They would, they would be my editors. They would read through it. And, and it was fun. And, and over those years, as I would put up a page a day, more people came to read it till we had 34 million readers around the world had come, come to the site and, and, and read the book. And so I think if you take a task that's too big and you break it down into smaller tasks, it becomes manageable. You know, so if, if I need a big task to be done in one day, I could break it up into five or six 15 minute tasks, you know, and, and get that done rather than sitting at the computer for two hours. It's easier for me to break it up and uh, and then I don't feel stressed. Yeah, I, I totally get it. And so for everyone who's listening that has 20 different projects going right now, it's okay. <laughs> Just keep going in all those different directions. And when you're struggling, remember one of our people, uh, amazing guy, just raised $20 million and created an awesome movie that we get to all watch <laughs> while doing 20 other things probably. Yeah. I mean, the movie itself, the movie wasn't done in a day. It took us two and a half years. And, <laughs> and so every day I would wake up and the studio in Spain would send me shots and I would give my notes to them. And then I would also work on the dialogue and I would work on and I would work on 10 different aspects of the film at a time. And all of us were just kind of just picking away and you just have to be patient, you know, just, just keep at it. But yeah, it's the bite size. It's the bite size kind of way of doing things. So with that being said, I know for a fact I could talk to you for five more hours, but I want to be <laughs> cognizant of uh, your time. And I did have some rapid, if, you, if it's okay with you, I'd love to ask Go you some it. rapid fire. Okay. You ever played Legend of Zelda? Oh, absolutely. Uh, Breath, of, Breath of the Wild. I've finished it twice. Heck yes. <laughs> um, I can't wait favorite? for the sequel. Okay, good, man. That's that brings joy to my heart. What's your favorite video game? All right, um, role-playing game, role-playing game. Favorite role-playing game? Like like Dungeons and Dragons? Sure, like Zelda or Oh, okay, Final you said video game, video game. Yeah, video uh, game. RPG video game, sorry. World of Warcraft. Oh, okay. I haven't played that one. Oh, it's amazing. I I played it with the family. It is it is, it is really really huge it's wonderful you worked for james gunn on the special and is that right for the specials yeah, yeah yeah and now the 20th anniversary of the film and guardians of the galaxy having two huge successful films do you ever think did you ever think james would get as far as he has no i mean uh, you know when we all make movies you know we're all nobodies <laughs> we're doing it you know i remember yeah, I, I I I remember. I think Leonard Nimoy came to one of I I forget there was I, there was one of the screenings, and I remember some some big stars kind of came to it and whatnot. But yeah, I I I don't think any of us ever thought any of us would be anything. Amazing. 
and you get to kind of relive all that as the 20th anniversary comes around. Yeah. Yeah. Have you, have you ever been to power Morphin con in Pasadena? I have not. I didn't know there was one. There is. So maybe you'll be a tender next time. Yeah. Any plans or have you ever done any Assyrian characters like from ancient Assyrian mythology in any of your narrations or movies or anything? Yes. We, we consider Gilgamesh to be ancient uh, Assyrian, yes. right? Yep. So Gilgamesh is in the Dreamland Chronicles. And, um, and I did another book called uh, Magic Carpet, which actually has a lot of my uncles and aunts and the winged, you know, the winged bulls, yes. um, you know, are in it. And, you know, so yeah, there's a lot of Assyrian uh, stuff in there too. And I'd love to do a, you know, cause I, Magic Carpet was really fun. Cause it, it was, it was, it was essentially there's uh, the, one of the girls was named Scheherazade. And uh, so it had a, a Persian kind of feel to it, but I was adding a lot of the Assyrian stuff into it as well. But um, I would love to maybe work with an Assyrian, uh, like a historian, and do something that would really be, whether it's a time travel or a fantasy or something like that, that, that would be a lot of fun. I love your ability, Scott, to just bring all these different worlds, perspectives, backgrounds, your Italian father, your Assyrian mother. It's exciting, man. I, I'm just th thrilled about I'm glad that this July 24th is the big day, right? July 24th is the big date. I, I, I just need as many people as possible to watch it. So that way, hopefully I can get to do this a second time and, and do better. Well, I can promise you, we will blast this out as far as we possibly can. Thank you. Um, Thank you so I, much. I have two questions in closing. The first, first one is you took your mom to the museum in SoCal. What was that like? No, it was in London. Oh, my bad. That's right. The one that happened yeah. last year. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was that was absolutely amazing. You know, we it was her 80th birthday and we had I had flown so much for work that we had enough miles for two first class tickets to take her. And so I took her for her 80th birthday, which was just very special. And we went twice. She was in tears. I mean, to see her walking through she was able to at the exhibits they would talk about where the where the stones were found where the the statues were that you know and she was able to recall stories from her father and and his youth and i remember poppy would say he was here and he grew up here and this was over here and and so for her and i to both be that close to our heritage was was wonderful i i found that for me I can absorb things better if I can sit in a corner and I could sketch it. And so I, I bring a sketchbook and watercolors and I, and I sit and it's, it's so much more personal than it is if you just take a picture and move on to sit and study it. You learn about, you look at every crack you look at because I mean, you're drawing it. You look at everything, all of the subtleties, everything that the artist put into that sculpture you're absorbing that you're studying it you're 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 duplicating it and so i i i really i love going back and looking at those sketches and and remembering sitting there and doing that 
That's so sweet, man. And and that's so special. You got to enjoy that time with your mom in London and yeah. uh, relive those memories. So one question we ask of all of our people who are on the Assyrian podcast in closing is, you know, if you could say one thing to all Assyrians who are listening to this episode, what would you say to them? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> I would say thank you. Thank you for, for keeping our heritage alive and for uh, keeping the language alive. And I, I, wish I, I wish I retained the language. My mom says I stopped speaking it when I was four, when we moved. I love hearing it. I've loved meeting all the Assyrians who've, who've reached out to me and connecting to them, connecting with them. So just thank you. Thank you for, for, for keeping us alive. Well, thank you for taking the time and for remembering the Assyrian people and your own heritage. And, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled, man. We're all thrilled and we're all going to tune in to watch Animal Crackers. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me on. Of course. Thanks for sticking with us on this episode of the Assyrian Podcast. I hope you loved it as much as I did. And I want to encourage you to share the Assyrian Podcast with your friends, with your family, subscribe to it, and let us know what you think. We love hearing from our listeners. And remember, the Assyrian Podcast is all about highlighting the story of Assyrians from all around the world. Let us know what you've got going on. Stay in touch and let's keep on encouraging one another. Have a great week.